This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. The Barber Violin Concerto, which you are hearing, is one of the few American pieces that can truly be called staples of the standard orchestra repertoire, along with a handful by Gershwin and Copland. Since the United States has a good century and a half of orchestral compositions to its history, some people think that's a disgrace. Earlier this month, a group of composers and academics in Cleveland decided to confront the issue where it starts with the major orchestra in their city. In a long letter to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, they accused the Cleveland Orchestra of, quote, blatantly ignoring music of its own country. Joining us now is one of the letter's co-signers, Keith Fitch, head of the composition department at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And with me here in the studio is Ed Harsh, the president and CEO of New Music USA, an advocacy organization for new American music. So, Keith, what made you and your colleagues decide to write this letter? Well, Naomi, I think you could categorize this as the straw which broke the camel's back. Many of us have been having these conversations with various members of the orchestra's administration for quite some time, uh, kind of quietly and privately. We saw the announcement of next season, the 2014-15 season, which includes only one work by a living American, no works by any of the historical figures you referenced earlier. One piece out of a season which by my rough count includes 71 separate individual compositions. So we looked at this and we said, this is approximately about 1% of the programming. And really, we have to say something about this. Here we are in a great American city with a great American orchestra and a great American audience. And to only have one piece represented seems to be, well, as you could tell from the letter, we were all quite uh, disturbed by this. And I'd like to just say that this is not something about the ensemble per se, because, you know, myself and my colleagues, these are our friends and colleagues in the orchestra. These are faculty members with whom I interact every day. We love this orchestra. Ed, what is your response to this letter? Well, I, of course, philosophically am completely on the same page and in agreement, and I'm delighted that the, these composers uh, stepped forward and, and made their voices heard. That's very important. I definitely feel the uh, the lack of representation from somebody from the orchestra or, or elsewhere in the orchestra world, and I, I, I feel some I would like to kind of defend them in some way, but in this case, there's not a lot to defend, actually, in terms of just the strict looking at the season and just as Keith describes, it's kind of shocking. You know, I I might um, jump in. First, let me say that we did invite the Cleveland Orchestra to be on this program. We also asked them for a comment on the letter, but we didn't get a response. So now, what has their response to you been, Keith? From the administration and the management of the orchestra, there has been no word whatsoever. They may be preparing a response. I do not know. From the members of the orchestra who have contacted my colleagues and myself, it has been 100% positive and supportive. We have heard from section players and principal players alike who have stopped me in the hall, stopped me in various places around town, and said, thank you so much for saying this publicly. So many of us feel this way. Uh, We've been trying to have these conversations for quite a while. I've also heard from a member of the board of the orchestra who said, thank you very much, what can I do to help? 
And then the public reaction, primarily through social media, Twitter and Facebook, which as we know is kind of the, the public forum of our time, has been overwhelmingly supportive as well. Um, between people sharing the article, commenting upon the article, and liking the article, we are well over 800 interactions with this topic on Facebook. Ed, can I just ask you, what is the Cleveland Orchestra's overall track record with American music? Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert. I haven't been following them uh, day by day. In fact, uh, Keith may be a better uh, source on this, but uh, they certainly have not been among the kind of leaders in the orchestral field uh, in either doing, uh, well, certainly not American music and to some extent neither with new music per se. I mean, there's, there is new music on the season next year, uh, but it's a small amount and it's almost all European. So uh, it, the, in the letter, the composers referenced a number of orchestras like uh, Los Angeles, Albany, uh, New York Philharmonic, who have you know really been out there doing fabulous work. It's it's by no means the case that this is you know a, a blanket problem. I mean, obviously there are big long term issues with respect to the orchestra, and I'd be happy to talk about those further. But but in terms of the, you know this is not something that's happening in every orchestra. A lot of orchestras actually are making an effort realizing the importance of new music, the importance of American new music. Um, so, you know, I would say that Cleveland sort of in that way a little bit sticks out among the really, you know, the kind of traditionally top orchestras as being not really a great representative of what can be done. Um, there are two other points I'd like to make to this issue. Number one, we have a program with the Cleveland Orchestra called the Daniel R. Lewis Composer Fellow, which goes to a young and emerging composer every two years. We are in the 14th year of that program. We are at our eighth composer. Only two of them have been American. And of the five composers commissioned to write work celebrating the orchestra's upcoming centennial, there is not one American-born composer on the list. To celebrate the Cleveland Orchestra's centennial? Yes, there is not one native-born American composer on the list. I, I, that, that speaks volumes to me. I have the latest year that the League of American Orchestras put out a repertoire report that was in 2010-2011, and it shows that two out of the top 20 most frequently performed composers were American, Barbara and Bernstein, who came in at number 17 and 20. The top 20 pieces performed did not include one by an American. Ed, does this sound familiar to you? Yes, it does. And actually, in some ways, you know, this is such an old, agonizing story. And in a way, looking at just the performed repertoire, uh, as, as you're suggesting here, really shows how far there is to go. I think it's important, actually, to bring in here from, from the perspective of, you know, going beyond just merely new music and new American music, the, the orchestra field is facing a lot of challenges. And, you know, our feeling on the, from New Music USA, for sure, is that part of the solution to the future, nobody knows what the future is going to look like, but wow, is it not going to look like the present. And in fact, the present that you're illustrating here with these the works being performed is again a kind of shocking illustration of how much how far we have to go because there are so many opportunities that new work that local work that interaction with communities that results in new work that can there's so much that can be done and here we are still talking about you know is it Mozart or is it Brahms who gets I mean this is it's like this is the wrong conversation well in our letter we do commend the orchestra for its work in building audiences in Cleveland 
doing outreach to different communities in Cleveland. But what, what we don't understand is in this audience building effort and and this outreach, why is American music given such short shrift? And my experience as a composer, a conductor, a new music advocate, I have a concert series, is that audiences are hungry for new and exciting work, and they will respond. But you have to give them the opportunity. You have to trust the audience enough to give them the opportunity to listen to this music. And well, do you think that it. in the current economic climate, orchestras are afraid to program something that's perceived as too adventurous? Well, yes, I think that may be a perception, but I don't necessarily know if it's a reality. And in the letter, we mentioned primarily living composers, and it started with living composers. But as you mentioned, Naomi, and as Ed mentioned as well, there is a giant swath of repertoire, American repertoire, that's never represented. You know, Sessions and Ruggles and Walter Piston and Peter Menon and Roy Harris. Uh, we hear very little Ives, et cetera, et cetera. The, the music that has defined us as so a culture. So why are we not hearing this? I know Ed is dying to, to say something, too, but why, <laughs> why do you think we're not hearing this? Here's the thing. Uh, there's short-term risk and there's long-term risk. It's, it may seem expedient to say, ah, it's uh, tough times here. Wow, we don't know what to do. We're scared. So let's just go back to being the museum of immutable masterpieces that everybody loves. That's long-term suicide. The risk that's being taken there is that, you know, in 20 years, there will, in fact, be obvious irrelevancy in the orchestra field. And there's so many people, so many smart people in the orchestra field who are thinking about this problem and are coming up. Not everybody's solution to it is lots of new music, but I believe that orchestras are going to survive in their own communities based upon their relationships with their own communities. And I am a firm believer that you can't build that relationship without any recognition of the, the artists who are within that community, whether it be the national community or the local community. And so in that respect, I mean, again, I, I'm, I, it's hard for me to speak for, for the Cleveland Orchestra, but I say in principle what I see here seems to smack of a short-term uh, safety that, is, wow, is it a long-term risk. Is part of the problem with American music, programming American music, the fact that a lot of the music directors around this country are not from here? In Cleveland, that's the case with Franz Felsermus. We've got Gustavo Dudamel. We've got Yannick Nézé-Séguin. We've got Andres Nelsons, Ricardo Muti. Is it that they don't have as much of a connection to American music to program it? The short answer is yes, but does not include all the names on your list. If you look at the orchestras that are making a commitment to American work, they are, yes, primarily directed, conducted by American-born music directors, David Allen Miller in Albany, Bob Spano in Atlanta, David Robertson in St. Louis. The list goes on and on. MTT in San Francisco. Ed is shaking his head well, at no, this point. <laughs> actually, I'm, I'm, actually I'm, I'm agreeing. He's hitting the, some high points. I, just, I have some beautiful examples of, well, at least one fabulous example um, uh, Giancarlo Guerrero in uh, Nashville, who is, wow, he is one of the true champions of right. new music and, playing. So, I mean, I'm sure that that's Costa the Rican, And also Nima Yarvi, yeah. who was yeah, originally sure. from Estonia, embraced sure. American well, music. And I, and I would add Ricardo Muti to an extent in that, because when Muti was in Philadelphia, there was a similar um, discussion about the lack of American music being played, and a similar letter, I believe, was written. And Muti said, you know, I just don't know very much of it. And he appointed Richard Wernick to, to an advisory role with the Philadelphia Orchestra. You know, so he showed a curiosity. And in Chicago, they do have 
two young composers in residence, one of whom is American. In our particular situation right here, with Maestro Welzermust, he has publicly stated that he is not interested in American music. Yeah, which is sort of reprehensible. I mean, there are certain things that are defensible and there are certain things that aren't, and that's, that's reprehensible. I would agree with you, Ed. <laughs> and taking a step back from there are 19th century American composers, George Chadwick, Edward McDowell, John Knowles Payne, Amy Beach, yeah. whose music we're also not hearing. That's all true. Um, I do emphasize, obviously, the living people, uh, partly because that's what my organization uh, is about. But there is an opportunity with living people that you don't have with dead people, that they can actually interact with you, with the orchestra, with your community. And I, and I, I don't want to seem like I'm harping on community, community, community. But at the end of the day, artistic institutions exist in, as living things when they interact with human beings. And the museum thing, uh, God bless George Chadwick and all the others. But, you know, living people are different than dead people. And that's important. And to that point, Ed, just another small example of statistics from here, that with the exception of a piece commissioned for the Martin Luther King Day celebrations in 2007, um, to my knowledge, our orchestra has not played a work by a local composer in 20 years, which is 1994, which was uh, the last work that Donald Erb wrote for them, even song. Yeah. Now, Cleveland has not been short of composers in that 20 years. We have a really active new music scene here. And uh, I would like to just add on to that. Before we, uh, you know, sound too much like composers rattling on, oh my goodness, bad orchestra, bad orchestra, there actually is a very important piece of responsibility that's actually on the composer's side, which is if you're going to talk community and if you're going to actually make, truly make the case of your role as a positive member of the community, you actually have to act that way. And that actually challenges you on a lot of levels, some of them personal, some of them kind of your public persona. It actually also challenges you on the level of what music you're writing. That can become slightly uncomfortable uh, for composers like me and my generation who are brought up a little bit on the 19th century romantic notion that the artist knows best and whatever the artist knows is, is you know, goes and everybody else just has to kowtow. You know, that's not really where we are. Uh, so we don't want to make it sound as if, you know, if only everybody else in the world would behave, everything would be fine. We've got a role in it, too. In 1980, composer William Schumann gave a speech to the American Symphony Orchestra League, and he said it was hard to think of any other country in the world that didn't embrace music by its own composers and that it was, quote, only in America that we have this kind of inverse chauvinism. What's your reaction to that? I think he's absolutely correct, and I think it's very sad that so many years later we're still talking about this. Um, as we, my colleagues and I mentioned in this letter, it is unthinkable that a European orchestra would treat its local composers this way. Um, imagine if the Vienna Philharmonic announced a season with one living Austrian and all the other new music was Stucky and Rouse and Tower and Curliano. American you know, composers, yeah. American, they'd be crucified in the press. And it's, it's very odd, and it's something that I've struggled with my whole life, because this you know, inverse chauvinism, as you say, is almost exclusively a musical phenomenon. We don't find it in theater and dance and literature and painting. We find it only in music, really, where we have created, as Ed said, a real museum mentality about concert music. And I'm sure there, there are many historical reasons for this, and it's a very long conversation, but we have to fight this. 
I mean, that's one reason that my colleagues and I wrote this, is to become advocates in the community and take the hits that may come or not, you know. Yeah, indeed. This this conversation about uh, orchestral, you know, American presence in, uh, you know, uh, orchestral uh, repertoire, it's so old. It's so boring, actually, at this point. Exactly. Uh, and in fact, I, it's one of the things that makes some people in the field, I don't quite share this radical opinion, but there's some people say, look, the orchestra is done with, you know, and these are composers. Who cares, you know? And these are folks who are creating their own ensembles, who are out there doing completely different work. And this is another threat to the orchestral world, that if you actually uh, avoid the, the world that you're living in long enough, it goes away and you're dead. I would just like to say that um, in the broader context that in our situation here, if this were not an issue, we would not be gaining the traction that this letter has gained. I hope that we can have a discussion here or throughout concert halls and you know, orchestra boards and various places throughout the United States about this issue. Because as Ed said, I mean, come on, we've been talking about this for how long? Well, thank you both very much for your comments. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Now that we've heard from two composers about the question of American music on concert programs, let's talk to somebody from a major orchestra. Joining us is Simon Woods, the executive director of the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. Welcome. Thank you. What is the right amount of American music in a season for an American orchestra? Well, I think the article made some you know, great points, um, the, the most important of which is that, that American music is a very, in a very vibrant moment in its history. We have an incredible tradition of music in the 20th and you know, going into the 21st century now. So, so it's a rich, rich pool of music. And yes, it definitely deserves to be played. And, and there are many orchestras in the U.S. that have had long commitments to American music. You think Do you have some kind of guidelines in Seattle as to how much you program? No, we don't have guidelines, but we have a tradition here. Um, the whole time through the, the tenure of uh, Gerard Schwartz, when he was music director of the Seattle Symphony, the Seattle Symphony was one of, those, one of the orchestras in this country that really championed American composers. I mean, right the entire way through that period. And we're in, a, in an era now with our new music director, Ludovic Molot, who's, who's French. And as you can hear, I'm, I'm not, not exactly um, American either. But we're just as committed to American music as the previous um, leadership was. So it's going Did- to be something you're going to go on seeing here. Did Ludovic Molo sort of come naturally to American music, or did he sort of have to be led a little bit to it? No, I think he, he is very connected to a number of important American composers. A, a different group of composers to, I think, the composers that were heard mostly through the, the Gerard Schwartz year here. I mean, he, he is... Um, he was very close to Elliot Carter, and, and in fact, we we actually commissioned and performed last year uh, Elliot Carter's last orchestral work. And Ludovic also loves Varese, and he loves Ives, and he loves some of the more iconoclastic of of uh, American composers, which is which is actually different for our audience, but very very important, you know, groundbreaking composers. You just launched a new Seattle Symphony Media recording label, and one of your first releases is an all-American album, Ives' Second Symphony, Gershwin's An American in Paris, and the world premiere by Elliot Carter. What inspired that recording? 
So our new label um, enables us to release live recordings from, from Benaroy Hall here in Seattle. We have a hall with an absolutely fabulous acoustic as, as well as a, as a great orchestra. And so we wanted to capture um, some, of the, some of the great live performances that have, that have gone on here. And this CD actually does capture three fantastic live performances of American works that happened in the first year of, of Ludovic Molo's tenure here. You know, you wouldn't necessarily uh, put Gershwin next to Carter, and yet that's, I think, an, an example of kind of very kind of nice creative programming that, that Ludovic you know, likes to do. And it's a, it's a challenging and wonderful juxtaposition. One of the criticisms we heard when we spoke to Keith Fitch of Cleveland was that not only do orchestras program too little music by living composers, they also avoid some of the great American composers of the past, like William Schumann and Howard Hansen and Roy Harris. What's your take on that? Well, that, that is an area in which the Seattle Symphony has been very strong for years. I mean, Hansen and, and, and William Schumann and that particular era of composers, that was really championed by Gerard Schwartz, and those works were recorded extensively by the Seattle Symphony, and many times their only recordings. So, so that's something in, that, that, that we're, we're very close to. I guess, you know, my only concern is I start getting nervous when I hear, when I hear discussion about there could kind of be some kind of, you know, moral imperative to, to play uh, American music. I think what's interesting about orchestras in this country is this huge diversity of repertoire they play and and each one of them has a different personality you know the new york philharmonic has a different tradition to the boston symphony or the seattle symphony and the cleveland orchestra has a distinct tradition in european music and so we should also celebrate that as well you know i think it's there's room for many many different styles of programming and that's a wonderful thing seattle is performing on the upcoming spring for music festival at carnegie hall with the New York premiere of John Luther Adams' Become Ocean, and WQXR will be broadcasting that concert. Spring for Music is really a special thing to showcase adventurous programming. Is the program that you're playing at Carnegie Hall the kind of one that you would play in Seattle? Absolutely. And in fact, we, we have played it in Seattle. The John Luther Adams piece is, is something that we're very proud of, actually. This is a you know, this is a, a major, major work, a 45-minute work by a very important American composer, a composer I think we're only just now beginning to realize how important he probably is. It's an extraordinary, astonishing piece. You know, going back to, you know, talking about the identities of, of the orchestras, you know, this program with Varese's Désert and Debussy's La Mer is great because it's a French-American program, which is what we are. We're an American orchestra with a French conductor. And so we have here a, an American composer, a French composer, and a French composer, Varese, who spent most of his life in America. So it's, a, it's, it's all tied neatly and, and nicely together in a wonderful combination of music. There seems to be a perception out there that if you play familiar music, they will come. And if you play music that audiences don't recognize on first sight or new composers or something, they will not come. What is your experience in Seattle? Well, there's a lot of truth in that, sadly. Um, we still have a, a long way to go in persuading audiences um, to be open-minded with things that they're unfamiliar with w of whatever era, um, whether it's contemporary music or whether it's repertoire from many centuries ago. So familiarity definitely is, is something that's, that's meaningful as we think about building audiences. However, in Seattle, we're lucky because we have an audience which is quite open-minded. We have an audience which is very receptive to different things here. And that's part of what enables us as an organization to be quite bold in the way we plan and in the, in the, in the way we think about um, artistic programming, just as uh, like our colleagues down the road at the LA Philharmonic who are very 
being incredibly creative about their programming. So I think it's a lot to do with what environment you're in, and, and we're lucky in that respect in Seattle. Simon Woods, the executive director of the Seattle Symphony, thank you very, very much. Thanks a lot. It's great to talk. This has been Conducting Business. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.